you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles to God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, well, good morning uh, to those of you who are joining us in the room uh, and to those of us those of you who are joining us online, uh, welcome to City on a Hill this morning. Uh, particular welcome to those of you who are visiting with us today. Uh, my name is Dave. It is my honor to serve as the lead pastor of this church. And whether you have been following Jesus for your whole life, or if you're brand new to the things of Jesus and Christianity, our hope is that everyone uh, will get to know Jesus better through gathering with us today. Before we reflect upon the Bible reading that we've just had read out, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray with a traditional prayer that Christians have prayed throughout the ages on the fourth Sunday in Lent, which is the season in the lead up to Easter. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, whose blessed Son, Jesus Christ, came down from heaven to be the true bread which gives life to the world. Evermore give us this bread, that, we, that he may live in us and we in him, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Speak to us, Lord, we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Well, Don't Look Up is a Netflix original film starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Jennifer Lawrence, Meryl Streep, Kate Blanchett. Show of hands if you have seen Don't Look Up. Uh, excellent. Don't look around. Don't, you don't, look, don't look around at the hands in the air. 
A lot of hands were in the air. A lot of us have seen that movie. But it is all about two, uh, I guess, low-level astronomers, scientists, Leonardo and Jen, uh, who go on a giant media tour to warn humankind of an approaching comet, comet, not comment, <laughs> a comet, I can't say the word comet, a comet, a comet. Say it with me. Turn to your neighbor and say comet. And now say it back to me. Okay, excellent. Uh, they go on a giant media tour to warn humankind of an approaching comet that will destroy planet Earth. Now, early in the movie, they are speaking with the US president, played by Meryl Streep, and uh, they're warning her that there is a 99.78 chance that the comet will hit in six months and 14 days' time. The comment, the comment is made that scientists don't want to say 100%, but this is kind of the closest you can get to 100% without saying 100%. And yet the president says... Let's call it 70% and move on. Trying to understand what political implications there are of making an announcement like this. Uh, and one of them says, it's not even close to 70%. And then the president says, you cannot go around saying to people there's a 100% chance they're going to die. You know, it's just nuts. It's a fascinating movie. And it raises some significant questions, important questions, including how do you live if you know the end is coming. In the movie Don't Look Up, some, because they know the end is coming, dedicate themselves to making a difference in the world. Others are like, well, stuff it. We're all going to die. Uh, while others are like saying, look up, get ready, be alert. Uh, but then there's also a campaign to don't look up. Uh, don't live in fear. Hey, don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. Don't look up and you won't live in fear. While others just want to enjoy a great concert, uh, making the most of relationships, perhaps indulging in wild living or enjoying good food. But here's the thing, outside of a fictitious movie, it's actually an important question for us all. How do you live knowing the end is coming? How do you live knowing the end is coming? Have you thought about that question before? Uh, in our teaching text today, we, beget, we, we, we had in the middle, in verse 7, it said, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. This is our third last week in our 1 Peter teaching series. And Peter, uh, the apostle of Christ, one of Jesus' closest followers, he has written this letter within a clear framework of the end of all things. That is, life in this age has an expiry date. History is heading towards a certain end. Now, Peter's audience, they live uh, in between the two comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. They live in between the first coming of Christ, the first coming of Christ. We see God come amongst us, taking on flesh, living as a man, living a perfect life, dying a sacrificial death, being raised triumphantly from the dead. And after he appeared to over 500 people, the Lord Jesus Christ ascended back up to his father's right hand. Peter's audience have seen that. That has happened 
before this letter has been written. And yet they also live in a time while they are waiting for the second coming of Christ. Jesus has promised that he will return. Peter has no doubt about that. Scripture has no doubt about that. But it's not only Peter's audience who live in between the two comings of Christ. We live in between the two comings of Christ. Jesus has come once and Jesus will come a second time. It is certain that he will return. And so it's actually a critical question. How do you live knowing the end is coming? Now, to answer that question, uh, we're going to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. We've had it read out for us. Uh, If you've got a Bible, keep it out, keep it open. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, please go see our team at the info desk after the service. We'd love to put a paper Bible in your hands. We'd love to encourage you to read it. We'd love to answer any questions you've got as you read it. So please see our team after the service. But as you scan your eyes over 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, you'll notice that there are two paragraphs. And we're going to kind of look at them in turn in paragraph 1, verse 1 to 6. We're going to set the scene And then in paragraph 2 from verse 7 to 11, we're going to see, I guess, a practical outworking of what has come before. And to be honest, as we've looked at 1 Peter, this is perhaps some of the most practical teaching so far in the book of 1 Peter. So let's set the scene with that first paragraph from chapter 4, verse 1 to verse 6. And here's what I want you to notice in this paragraph. We're going to move relatively quickly through the first paragraph, and then we're going to slow down through the second paragraph. But in the first paragraph, I want you to see the call upon us, upon Peter's original recipients, and indeed upon us. And the call is this, it is to be a gospel-shaped, counter-cultural community. We are called to be a gospel-shaped, counter-cultural community. Pick it up with me, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You see, we, we're reminded again, which Peter has been doing the whole way through this book, of, of the suffering of Christ, the gospel of Christ. We're reminded of the suffering of Christ on the cross. And the suffering of Christ on the cross is not only the way in which we have our sin dealt with by God, but it also becomes an example and a paradigm for how we are to now live. You know, with the same type of thinking it says there in verse One, we now live with a different relationship to sin. Now, it says there, um, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I don't think uh, this is a call for sinless perfectionism. Uh, That's not consistent with what the rest of Peter teaches and indeed the rest of the New Testament teaches. But it is a call to no longer have that same relationship with sin to no longer indulge in human passions, it describes in verse 2, but to live rather for the will of God. It's a call to no longer live for yourself, but for Him who died for you and was raised again. Our lives are to be gospel-shaped. We are to live differently in response to what Christ has done in and through 
his sufferings. We're then given a reminder of what some of those human passions looked like. Pick it up with me in verse 3, it says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. We get this list there in verse 3, this list of self-centered living for the moment. And the call is, turn away from that way of life that unbelievers continue to display. And so much so that as you turn away from that type of life, verse 4 suggests that not living like this looks strange. Not getting involved in the same sensuality, not getting involved in the same idolatry will lead to Christians being marginalized when we try to live within the will of God. You know, you might have experienced that quite explicitly as perhaps some of your peers, some of the peers you went to school with or university with or Friday drinks after work. There's just a certain culture, there's certain partying, there's certain sensuality, there's certain selfish living that you look a little bit strange when you don't partake in the same things. That is right and normal. And don't be surprised if you are maligned for seeking to live within the will of God. But here's the thing, we and all the world, our unbelieving friends and family and colleagues must know that the end is coming and we will all be accountable before God. Look at verse 5, it says, But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. Uh, just quickly, we, we don't have enough time to dig into that much, but I think it's just talking about those who have since died. The gospel was preached to them and they've now since died. Uh, verse uh, 6 continues, that though judged in the flesh, the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Verse 5 and 6 is a stark reminder that judgment is real. And that Jesus, the one who died, was buried, was raised again, ascended back to the Father. He is the judge of the living and the dead. He will return. And how we've lived and how we've responded to his gospel matters. That's why verse 6, it's important that this gospel has been preached. Because without this gospel, the word gospel simply means good news. Without this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ and his life, his death, his resurrection, without this gospel, we are without hope. Put positively, our only hope on the second coming of Christ is if our trust and our confidence is in Jesus Christ and all that he has done in his first coming. You see, in the first coming of Christ, thanks be to God, Jesus has lived a radically different life from the world around him, a radically different life from you and I. He has not partaken in the things of verse 3, of sensuality, of idolatry. Jesus has lived a perfect life without sin. 
And as we've spoken about on repeat through this series, Jesus then goes to the cross. Jesus dies a death he doesn't deserve. Back in chapter 2, we saw that for our sins, he bore our sins as he's nailed to that tree. Jesus dies a death that should have been for you and me. And yet Jesus has paid it all. Jesus has taken it all. But more than that, we know that three days later, death could not hold him down. Jesus is alive. He is raised triumphant and his resurrection, his empty tomb is a guarantee that all who trust in him, our tombs will likewise be empty. We too, on that day of judgment, when Christ returns, when he judges the living and the dead, we will be not condemned. We will be alive with him. The, The living one, gives a living hope, a new birth we saw back in chapter 1 to all who trust in Him. And so friends, let me urge you today to put your trust and your hope in Christ. Take hold of the security and the declaration of no condemnation that you can stand safe and secure when, not if, but when the end comes and Christ returns to judge the living and the dead brothers and sisters, and I say that to to those of you who are already trusting in Christ. Keep trusting in Christ and know that this gospel of all that we have in Jesus' life, death and resurrection calls us to not only take hold of the salvation that he offers, but to give ourselves to the transformation that comes to those who belong to him. We are called to be a counter-cultural community, shaped by the gospel, different from the culture around us. And so with verse 1 to verse 6 as, I guess, our gospel framework and foundation, back to the, the question that we've begun with, how do you live knowing the end is coming? Well, we move on to the second paragraph, and, and what we've got here are four practical ways to live in light of the end. How do you live knowing the end is coming? Look at verse 7 again. The end of all things is at hand, therefore... dot dot dot. Jesus is coming back, and as certain as we are that he's died and been raised again, he will return, therefore... dot dot dot. How do we live knowing that the end is coming? Well, for those taking notes, uh, the first thing I want you to notice from this paragraph is, number one, pray for one another. Number one, pray for one another. Interesting place to start. Prayer doesn't seem to be a particularly active way to live while we wait for the end. If anything, prayer requires us stopping, stopping doing things that might be good things to take the time out to pray. And yet, while it may seem insignificant, while it may seem like you ain't getting much done while you're on your knees praying, it's a priority in the light of the end because we are speaking to who? To the sovereign God of the universe, the one who alone is in control over history and when Christ will return. Of course, we ought to direct our gaze our hearts, our affection, our words to Him. Have a look at the rest of verse 7. It says, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled. 
and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Uh, Self-controlled and sober-minded in one sense are fairly synonymous and kind of with the first paragraph having just been read, they are in contrast, are they not? to the debauchery, the sensuality, the human passions, the idolatry of verse 3 and the way that unbelievers continue to live. It's a call for mental alertness. It's a call for vigilance. And as we are self-controlled, as we are sober-minded, it is essential, do you see the final phrase there, for the sake of your prayers. It's essential for the sake of your prayers. Keep your head clear of substances through godly living, being a countercultural community, through rest, so that you can pray. Now, what do we pray for during these days? We pray for anything and everything. I think Scripture shows us the priority of prayer is, yeah, we pray for the big things, but God cares even for the small things. And so we certainly pray for one another within this community. We we pray for one another that we would all be self-controlled, that we would all be sober-minded, that we would all be standing firm in Christ. We pray for the Christian community. But we pray likewise for the world, who need to know that Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. They need to know that he will return and it matters how they've lived and it matters how we respond to the offer of salvation in the gospel of Jesus. You know, towards the end of the movie, Don't Look Up, uh, just this isn't too much of a spoiler alert, it's not a particularly religious movie. It's a little bit wacky in many ways and yet... Uh, There's this scene towards the end where there's uh, some people gathered around the table and the end is nigh and actually this was off the suggestion of the character who did it, Uh, the actor, sorry, who did it, suggested this to the producers and so on. But there's this incredible prayer around the table in light of the end. Here's what the prayer says. Dearest Father and Almighty Creator, We ask for your grace tonight, despite our pride, your forgiveness, despite our doubt. Most of all, Lord, we ask for your love to soothe us through these dark times. May we face whatever is to come in your divine will with courage and open hearts of acceptance. Amen. That was worth the price of the Netflix subscription for that month. Quite a remarkable prayer in the context of the movie and almost like this left field moment in the movie. And yet there's a sense in which that prayer is relevant, not just in a fictitious movie with a comet coming for planet Earth. But in our time, while we wait, the end is nigh. Jesus Christ will come and he will judge the living and the dead. That prayer, even as Mel kicked off the service this morning, even some of the words she prayed about God in the midst of the darkness and our trust and our confidence in Him, there's, there's something powerful in this prayer from a Hollywood movie. 
You know, a couple of weeks ago when we were, uh, I was teaching on the, the first part of 1 Peter chapter 3, I shared a couple of books in the context of husbands praying for their wives and wives praying for their husbands. Uh, after the service, I actually discovered there's two more books I didn't even know exist. We might even have these up on the screen. Uh, these are by Andrew Case, and they cost like three bucks on Kindle. You don't need to own a Kindle. You can just download the Kindle app to read these. Uh, I personally know this one really well, Water of the Word, Intercession for Her. They're prayers for husbands to pray for their wives I know that one really well. Uh, I know a little bit of this one. I know Ro has used this a bit, prayers of an excellent wife that's praying for your husband. But these are the two that I discovered. The red one there, setting their hope in God, biblical intercession for your children. I've only had a little bit of a look through it, but it looks excellent. Uh, but hey, you might be like, I ain't a husband. I ain't a wife. I ain't got kids. Guess what? The green one is for all of us, praying the light, unfolding the rich intercession of the Bible. Uh, all of those books are excellent, and certainly the green one is relevant for us all as we pray for ourselves and, in pray, and indeed pray for one another. And the thing I love about all of these books is the way in which uh, Andrew Case in them actually turns the words of Scripture into prayers. There's some profound things that I've prayed that I wouldn't have thought of apart from God's Word kind of intermingling its way through these prayers. Uh, let me encourage you, feel free to take a photo of those while they're still up there. Easy to find, literally a couple of bucks on Kindle. Uh, get whichever ones are relevant for you. But friends, how do you live knowing the end is coming? We pray for one another. Make time to pray. It doesn't feel particularly productive, right? And yet we are praying to the God who is in control of the heavens and earth. We are praying knowing that Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. How do you live knowing the end is coming? Number two, love one another. Number two, love one another. Love is a significant priority among the people of God. Because relationships matter. And therefore, love must rule and reign within the context of our relationships in these last days. There can be tension in these last days. There can be conflict in these last days. And yet the call is to love. You know, if we're called to be in the community of God, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, if we're called to belong to Christ, God's own possession, we are, we are called out not only as individuals who put their trust in Christ, but individuals who put their trust in Christ and are called to belong to a community. And we're called to love the community, love the people of God. Now, love, in many ways, it feels like a feeling, right? And your love can ebb and flow for others based on circumstances, based on certain interactions, uh, and, and there's times where it's actually hard to love people. You don't feel like you love people. And yet love in Scripture is an active call to do something. It's not just a feeling. It's a verb. And it requires work. And it requires investment. It requires intentionality. Have a look at verse 8. We've, we've heard that the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. What a sentence. Let's break it down. Above all. If, 
Uh, I think uh, I've got four points. Uh, I think point one, point three, and point four are good. They're from the Bible. Let's listen to them. But let's listen to the text as well. Of those four points, number two, it says, above all. And that type of language is consistently used by Peter and by Paul and by Jesus in the New Testament, the priority of love. This, above all, this is the priority. This is the most important thing. Remember Jesus said, they will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Above all, verse 8, and he says, keep loving one another. Let's just think about the word keep for a moment. It's easy to give up on love. It's easy to kind of go, this is too hard. It's easy to kind of go, not her, not him, everyone else. Yeah, that's okay. But they're a little bit tricky to love. No, no, keep on going. Keep on loving. Keep loving one another. And and then that next word, earnestly. Keep loving one another earnestly is the idea of constantly. There's a sincerity to our love. You know, Sam Storms, he says, our, 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 this earnestness means we're not going to be half-hearted. We're not going to be weak. We're not going to be self-serving. But our love must be concentrated, focused, and faithful. And I love in particular what Sam Storms says about uh, the, the final section, since love covers over a multitude of sins. Here's a, a, an extended quote from him. He says, Peter is not suggesting that we sweep under the rug every bad thing that happens, or in the name of love, let people run roughshod over us and others. His point is that when love flourishes, we are not easily offended, but are willing to endure injustices. This is the love, notes Carson, that breaks the downward spiral of wounded sensibilities, hard feelings and nurtured bitterness, dissension and vendetta. To cover sins is likely synonymous with forgiveness and the determination to shelter from exposure and condemnation those who have wronged us. Isn't that a wonderful picture of love? Love covering over a multitude of sins. Yes, you've sinned against me, and yet I forgive you. And I'm not going to shame you. I'm not going to tell everyone. We've we've worked this through, and love enables us to carry on. You know, in the the gospel, we, we know exactly what God has done to cover over a multitude of our sins. The cross of Jesus is the demonstration of God's love for us all. Because of Christ's finished work at the cross, our sin is covered. It's not saying it's not serious, it's just being dealt with. Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so Far has God removed our sin from us. Isn't that a remarkable promise? The cross deals with our sin. God has loved us and covered over a multitude of sin. Friends, let us be those who remember 
how kind and gracious God has been to us, how loving God has been to us, that as we look to the cross and the means by which God has forgiven us, may we take hold of that forgiveness, but may that then shape how we now love and forgive one another. Look, you might be here today and you're not yet a believer in Christ. We are so glad that you're here. And we hope and trust today and as you continue to meet with us and hear God's word, that you'll be blown away by God's love for you. And that how, how good is this? At the cross, God has offered to deal with your darkest secrets, your deepest shame, your most rebellious thoughts, words, and actions. Take hold of, of God's love in Christ today by, by turning to Him, by putting your trust in Jesus, our Saviour. And likewise, to those who are already trusting in Jesus as our, as our Saviour, as you think about love and as you think about forgiveness, as you think about difficult situations that you find yourself in, Let us keep being shaped by God's love for us in Christ as we love each other and forgive each other like that. Let me appeal to you in in your relationships. Don't give up on love. God hasn't given up on us. God hasn't given up on you. And so let's not give up on one another. How do you live knowing the end is coming? Number one, pray for one another. Number two, love one another. And number three, be hospitable to one another. Be hospitable to one another. We are called to open our homes and to open our lives and give ourselves to community. Give ourselves to Christian community. Give ourselves to radical community, sacrificial community. Look at it with me. We've we've heard in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. If you're like, oh, don't really want to do that, underline the without grumbling bit. Now, now why would it even say without grumbling? I think it's an acknowledgement that it it comes at a cost. It's hard work, isn't it? It's demanding. It it comes at a financial cost to open your, your home, to share your table, to open your life. It comes at a cost to allow people in. And it's not um, uh, show hospitality to one another if you're an extrovert. Now, this is a call on all, all of God's people. We welcome people in. And there's a vulnerability to welcoming people in and, and seeing you around your table and seeing the way that you interact with your family and seeing just kind of what's going on in your world. It can be easy to begrudge the cost of hospitality and the cost of generosity. And yet this is part of this gospel outworking, hey, the end is coming. Christ will return. He's going to judge the living and the dead. Hey, let's, let's not give up on one another. Let's keep opening our lives to one another. Let's be practical 
and radical in the way we show hospitality to each other. Uh, Tony Marita is uh, an Acts 29 pastor. He's based in uh, North Carolina in the United States. Uh, he's visited Australia, and I know a whole bunch of you are familiar with him and some of his books and have even heard him when he's come out to Acts 29 conferences previously. He's got an excellent little book called Ordinary, uh, and it's kind of about the ordinary Christian life, and he's got this beautiful little chapter. And it's very short. Uh, again, the book Ordinary, Tony Marita. You can pick it up for a couple of bucks on uh, Kindle. Uh, the chapter on hospitality, I'm not going to read the whole thing out, but I'm almost going to do that. No, no, I'm not going to read the whole thing out. But um, one of the things he talks about, well, five of the things he talks about uh, in his chapter on hospitality, he kind of really encourages us uh, with a whole bunch of Bible verses. We're not going to go to all the ones he goes to, but uh, to, to kind of really rethink how we think about hospitality by putting some things to death, putting some misconceptions to death when it comes to practicing and obeying this command to show hospitality. Uh, He talks about death to pride, uh, which is really a call to embrace humility. Uh, He talks about death to paybacks. Uh, That is, we only show hospitality so that we can get something back in the future, that we we do it so that others will return the favour. He talks about death to sensationalism. I love that section. It's small, but really profound. Keep it simple. You know, verse 9 doesn't say show entertainment to one another. It says show hospitality. You don't have to have everything looking perfect. Just quickly, I did have an Italian come up to me after the service, the first service, and actually just said, look, my mama, I don't think you said mama, I'm adding that bit in. My mom, (laughs) my, my mom says that a simple Italian hospitality moment has to have at least eight courses. And so, look, uh, if you're Italian, can you zip it back to three courses? I don't know. Just, just keep it simple. It doesn't have to be eight courses and hours upon hours. There's a, there's a death to a sensationalism that just is part of normal life and welcoming people in. Fourth, he talks about a death to partiality. You know, saying no to favoritism. Actually welcoming all sorts into your home. But the, the fifth and final thing he talks about is death to self indulgence. And I want to unpack this one a little bit further with a couple of paragraphs. So bear with me on this. I think it might be on the screen as well. But Tony Marita says this. He says, we must kill this idea. My home is my refuge. I often hear people say that. It's idolatry. Jesus is our refuge. We need to open our homes to people. When you replace stewardship for ownership, you won't practice hospitality. The Christian knows he or she owns nothing. We're stewards of God's possessions, including our homes. The question is not, how much money should I give to advance the kingdom? But how much of God's money should I keep for myself? Isn't that good? And not, what's the least I can do for people? But how many people can I possibly have in the home God provided? And how many people can I serve with God's resources? It's not a sin to have a big home. It's a great blessing and a wonderful tool for loving a broken world. Do you view your home, apartment, as the king in his castle, building a moat in order to keep people out? Or are you saying, my king is Jesus, all may enter in. Jesus is better than any comfort you have. Believe that. You don't need a bigger TV and a more comfortable recliner in your man cave. You need a bigger front door. How good's this? And more seats filled around the table. Rest in Jesus as you pour yourself out for the physically and spiritually 
needy. If you like that quote, look up the book. It is excellent for that chapter alone. You know, as you think about, okay, well, when do I do that? I've got a busy week, Dave. Like, you know, I've got, I've got work. I've got a whole bunch of relationships I'm juggling and family expectations and, and I'm trying to keep fit. And I'm, you know, as you think about your week, think about how can you build hospitality into the rhythms that already exist? Most of us already have at least three meals a day. What does it look like to include someone in one of those meals? What does it look like to get up a tiny bit earlier and, and meet at the cafe at the train station that that's not welcoming into your home, but actually being hospitable and encouraging? What does it look like to, you know, kind of, hey, we're doing takeaway tonight. Do you want to join us for takeaway? I don't have time to cook. I don't have time to do that. But Uber Eats, thanks be to God for Uber Eats. It's coming. Come and join us. It doesn't have to be a four-hour marathon dinner. It might just be for that moment of dinner that we, that we gather around that table. You know, gospel communities, we talk about them often, are a great way to build something of this rhythm. We really value food in gospel communities because we, we value the opportunity of being able to share life with one another. Thank you to those here who uh, open their homes to welcome in gospel communities. But thank you to those who give themselves to going to gospel communities because it's not just the person who's opening their home that's showing hospitality. As each of us turn up to that table, we are showing hospitality to one another as we eat together. But look, as you think about outside of your gospel community, what are the other moments? What are the other rhythms? What are the ways to even think about Sunday as the Lord's Day? That's kind of a, a way that Christians have thought about Sundays since the resurrection of Jesus Christ on a Sunday some 2,000 years ago. How can you think about Sunday, not just as, you know what, uh, I can come and do a 90-minute church service, happy to do a 5-minute, 15-minute chat at the end of that. Look, basically from getting in my car to getting home again, I can kind of keep it to about two hours and that's a, an opportunity. Hey, that is a good thing. If you can do that and can do nothing else, brilliant. But how can you even think about it as those who are coming to a 10.30 a.m. service? Perfectly timed, you get a good sleep in, and then off the back of church, how can you do lunch intentionally? Not expensively. You know, well, what does it look like for you to, uh, I don't know, have a four-week rhythm? Week number one, uh, go out with people for lunch after church. Week number two, invite someone over for lunch after church. Week number three, invite yourself over for lunch to someone else's house. And week number four, you can have a nap or you can choose your own adventure and do whichever one of those you'd like. What does it look like for us to open up our own lives to show hospitality and welcome others in, but to also say yes to the invitation? Say yes to the late last minute invitation. Say yes to the Uber organized one who says on the, on the 15th of August, would you like to come out, out to my house afterwards for lunch? Uh, I don't know if I'll be alive on the 15th of August, but if the Lord wills, I'll be there. I'm going to bring some people with me. <laughs> but what does it look like for us, friends, to show hospitality to one another without grumbling? The question, how do you live knowing that the end is coming? The fourth and final thing is serve one another. We've seen in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand, therefore our final one, serve one another. Pick it up with me in verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves 
as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's a good summary, isn't it? Serve one another. Whatever you've got, use it for others. Turn from selfishness and embrace selflessness. You know, there are always formal opportunities in this church to serve one another. We're always looking for more people to be part of the mission of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Uh, Right now, we're rebuilding a whole bunch of teams, kind of off the back of COVID, off the back of floods, off the back of just a really disjointed start to the year. Pretty much every team has a need for people to jump on in, whether you've got experience or not, and to serve one another. Uh, If you're not serving and you know you've got time and you've got capacity and you've got a heart desire, let me urge you today to sign up. Uh, Please go speak to our team at the info desk, fill out co.co slash bruise, the connect form. Let us know. We'd love to help you to serve one another. There are formal opportunities to do that. But friends, let's not be held back by a roster. Let's not be held back by a specific need on a specific week to serve on a specific team. Those are good things. Let's look for, let's have eyes that see the informal opportunities. And the more we are involved in one another's lives, the more we are opening up our tables and opening up our homes and opening up our hearts, the more we will see and know of the needs within our community. The the more we will will see, hey, there's, there's somewhere that I can fill in. You know, I love it, even just kind of this whole season, the last couple of years of COVID, but perhaps even in particular the last few months of COVID properly came to Brisbane, right? I've loved hearing examples of how many people are seeing informal opportunities to serve one another in isolation, to bring around a meal, to bring around some donuts, to bring around some shopping, to, oh, look, uh, my kids are no longer in isolation, uh, but we are. We had people from church take our kids to school and then bring them back when school got cancelled in the middle of the day because of the floods and storms and and all that type of stuff. Thanks be to God for the people of God that see, when you give yourself to community, you offer to serve in informal ways. I'm encouraged by the many ways that I see that. Let's keep doing that. And there's many ways I am certain I don't see half of the ways that you are serving one another in love. But did you notice in verse 11, what's the ultimate goal of using what you've got for the sake of others? It's for the glory of God, that he will get the fame. That people will look on at the Christian community and kind of go, whoa, what is happening in that place among those people? And give glory to the Christian God, the Lord Jesus Christ. As I invite the band to the front... We began with the question, how do you live knowing the end is coming? Four things. Pray for one another. Love one another. Be hospitable to one another. And serve one another. Just in case you didn't notice, the final two words of all four of those points drawn from the second paragraph are one another. In fact, there's 59 specific commands in the New Testament to one another, one another. 
there's a, there's a graphic up on the screen there that kind of shows them all. The big circle behind is love one another. But you can kind of get an idea for all the times these different commands to love one another, greet one another, encourage one another, live in peace with one another, serve one another, and so on and so forth. Each of these is all about, in view of the end, serving one another, being on about one another. Christ has given himself up for our sake. We are to give up our lives to one another. Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. And so brothers and sisters, let's live in light of the end. Let's know that it is coming. And in these last days, let's pray for one another. Love one another. Be hospitable to one another. Serve one another. That we would be a people on about one another for the glory of God. Church, why don't you stand as we pray together? Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the way that you have called us into your family through the perfect life, sacrificial death and triumphant resurrection of Jesus. Father, gee, we are tempted to still live like the world lives. But would your spirit strengthen us and help us to turn from the passions of this world and to live within your will, that we would be a people who live in light of the end and that we would know that this is the time to give ourselves to the people of Jesus, to love one another deeply, to be devoted to one another, prioritizing one another for the good of one another and ultimately for the glory of your name. Father, thank you for the many examples of this already happening amongst these precious people. And Father, may there be all the more, both formally and informally as we give ourselves to this community. And Father, we desperately pray for the world around us who need the gospel. And Father, may they even see something of the gospel on display in the way that we live and the way that we prioritize one another. Father, we pray this for your glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.